At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have back with me today Dr. Jillian Isaac for another of our super popular keyword episodes. Today, we're going to talk about emergencies in the newborn, and we're going to divide it into two parts. But I want to say just a couple quick things up front. One, remember, we now offer CME through ACRAC, thanks to CMEFI, a fantastic company that provides it for us. So if you want to get CME, just go to the website, click on the links in each episode. Now, Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So today, like Dr. Wolpaw said, we are talking about emergencies in the newborn. And I said parts one and two because there are actually eight keywords that the ABA lists. And so if I was just doing this in like a 15 to 20 minute smaller podcast, I would probably do half and then the other half, but we're going to do it all in one go. And that's why I'm calling it parts one and part two. I also want everyone to know that I'm being very brave. You probably noticed that I have steered clear of heat <laughs> and cardiac until now. And uh, we've talked enough on this program that you know that I do mostly um, obstetric anesthesia. So this is a little bit out of my comfort zone and probably Dr. Wolpa also. I haven't provided anesthetic care for a child in probably since residency 13 years ago. Um, so it's good though. It was kind of fun to, to review this and go back over it. And I was surprised at how much I remember, but also how much has changed. So it's also, I think, kind of nice to see it from a perspective of someone who hasn't studied this in a while, going into it almost new de novo um, and trying to figure out like what's important and what's not important. Um, and the other thing I thought about when I was preparing for this is like, why does the ABA want me to know this, right? Like I'm not a pediatric anesthesiologist and a lot of us aren't going to be pediatric anesthesiologists, but my husband's in private practice and he's the only in-house anesthesiologist and they actually have a NICU and they do occasionally do NICU cases. And so I think there are times when you need to know at least the basics, even if you had to stumble through at least getting things going. And back when I was a resident before Johns Hopkins opened its new buildings, all of our ORs used to be on the same level. So I remember when I was a CA3 having to start a case before the pediatric people could get in because peds was home call. And it was this neonate with necrotizing enterocolitis. And it was super challenging and I was scared out of my mind, but I had to do it, right? And so I think there are going to be times when you're going to be faced with these situations and you just really need to know the basics. But the upside of that is by knowing just a few key things on each of these topics, you can answer almost everything correctly on both the written and oral exams. They don't expect you to be an expert in any of these um, but just knowing a few really high yield things is going to help you a ton on this test. Awesome. Do you agree? All right. I agree. Okay. So, um, yeah, and I'm with you 100%. It's been a long time with peds, but you know, <laughs> there are things that, uh, that are important to know. And again, whether we like it or not, a lot of this stuff is obviously going to be on the test. So folks out right. there who are looking at taking their, um, you know, board, board exams coming up, uh, this is important stuff to know. Yeah, and this is on the basic, uh, not on the basic, this is advanced. And it's if you're going to look at the ABA content outline, it's on page 37. It's under pediatric anesthesia, subsection H, and it's entitled emergencies in the newborn. And they have eight keywords in this category. Okay, so there's diaphragmatic hernia, there's tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia. 
excuse me, neonatal lobar emphysema, pyloric stenosis, necrotizing enterocolitis, omphalocele gastroschisis, respiratory distress syndrome, and then myelomeningocele. All right. So if we go back, I'm going to go through each one one by one, um, and I'll talk about what has been tested historically and what I think will probably be on the test in the future and going forward. So we'll just go one by one. So the first one is the diaphragmatic hernia. And interestingly, this hasn't been tested since 2012. And I think because a lot has changed actually in the past decade in how we manage these patients. And so there are historically kind of questions that were asked that they've taken out because they're no longer correct. And I'm bringing that up because if you're using data banks like me that are a little bit older, older question banks, it's not necessarily accurate anymore. Um, so it's important to know kind of what was testing, but the changes that they've made. So I have a few key points here that I want to go through and then some questions, like kind of outdated questions. So you know that they're outdated and then questions that I expect to see going forward. So that's based. So the ventilatory strategies have changed over the last 10 years. So if you're using older question banks, like I said, they may be wrong. So that's important to know, right? So a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, it's an early development defect that results in interabdominal organs going into the thoracic cavity. And the defect can be isolated or it can be associated with multiple congenital anomalies and cardiac anomalies are the most common. And that's actually really important as we go through these is a lot of these, not all of them, but a lot of them actually can be part of a syndrome and they want you to know what's associated with these things. Okay. Um, 90% of CDH are located in the posterior lateral diaphragm and almost all are left-sided. Physiologic consequences of CDH include lung hypoplasia, pulmonary hypertension, and pulmonary arterial or dysregulation and reactivity. So historically, CDH was actually considered a surgical emergency, and it was approached using very aggressive hyperventilatory strategies. But what we've found in the last 10 years is that these are actually very harmful um, to the lungs of neonates. And then also when they looked at survivors of CDH, that they had kind of chronic iatrogenic lung disease. So we've realized that what we were doing in the past is wrong. So now ventilatory strategies employ small tidal volumes with permissive, permissive hypernocapnia, and then also preservation of spontaneous ventilation. And now we actually wait to intervene until like the support from the ventilator has been minimized. So it used to be a true emergency, now not so much we're not doing aggressive hyperventilation anymore. And so I think going forward, that's probably what we'll start seeing on these tests is this more spontaneous ventilation, wait until you've um, minimized ventilatory support. The other thing with these, and I do OB, is um, now they actually help treat these by putting in a fetoscopic endoluminal tracheal occlusion balloon, and it helps with the development of the lungs. So we're actually treating these in utero, which is really cool. And I could see that going forward, asking them questions about these fetal procedures. But so I want to give you an example of an old question. So you know, when you're reading these, that this is outdated, so totally outdated. But if you're looking at old ACE questions or old IT questions, this is what you're going to see and it's wrong. Okay. So you have a newborn in respiratory distress, exam shows a scaphoid abdomen, cyanosis while breathing oxygen by mask and heart sounds in the right hemithorax. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? A, assisted ventilation with the bag and face mask. B, insertion of a chest tube on the left side. C, insertion of an NG tube. D, tracheal intubation and assisted ventilation. E, tracheal intubation and expansion of the left lung. Right. And as you said, uh, maybe at one time it would have been D, tracheal intubation and assisted ventilation, but now not necessarily. And so I'm, I'm sure that's why you're saying it's outdated. And obviously you would not want to stick a chest tube in the left side, uh, certainly at least not blindly, where you may end up in, a, in the intestines um, that, are, that are up there if this is a, a CDH. So you want to think about that. Um, 
and then uh you know in terms of um expansion expanding the left lung you're not going to be able to expand it when the intestines are are what's causing it to collapse right so right yeah, yeah exactly but the the stem is very um classic in terms of a stem for cdh so the scaphoid abdomen cyanosis heart sounds in the right hemithorax, right? And back in the day, they didn't necessarily diagnose this always on ultrasound. Now we know going into it, but that's a very classic like clinical signs of a um, CDH, okay? So now going forward, these are questions that you may see, all right? So this is a 3.3 kilogram neonate is brought to the OR for repair of a left diaphragmatic hernia. A three millimeter endotracheal tube is placed to a depth of nine centimeters. Initial ABG values from a right radial catheter while spontaneously breathing oxygen 50% are PaO2 82, PaCO2 41, pH 7.33, and a base excess of minus five. After reduction of the hernia, so during closure of the abdomen, vigorous attempts to expand the atelectic I'm not saying they're atelectatic, take two, lung are unsuccessful. The infant rapidly becomes very dusky, heart rate is 60, breast sounds are distant and squeaky bilaterally, and pulmonary compliance is decreased. Which of the following should be done first? A, obtain a chest x-ray of the chest. B, place a chest tube on the left. C, place a chest tube on the right. D, withdraw the endotracheal tube one centimeter in suction. E, reopen the abdomen. Yeah, so I think this is a tough one. Um you know, uh, you, anytime you're in the chest dealing with uh, things in the chest, you want to think about, um, the fact that you may have a pneumothorax or even a tension pneumothorax. Um, there is, uh, I'm reaching back here, but I think there is risk, uh, in these situations because you're really aggressively trying to inflate that left lung. So you're applying a lot of pressure. You can blow out the right lung and then end up with a tension pneumothorax on the right. So that's something you want to have in mind. So you would certainly and listen. And the right lung is also not really fully developed. So even all like the abdominal co- contents are on the left. So you definitely don't have a developed left lung. The right lung isn't awesome. It hasn't developed properly. Yeah. Right. So, so you would certainly want to do what you would always do, take a listen. But if you didn't hear breath sounds on the right, that would be a pretty good indication that, uh, that this had happened. And then you'd want to either needle or place a chest tube on the right side. So I'd go with C in this in this question. Yeah. And then this is just a, like a test-taking strategy. This is actually really funny. I have a book of logic puzzles sitting right here on my my uh, table. I love logic puzzles. And to me, uh, standardized tests, like you have to have knowledge, but there is like a systematic way they're written and it is a bit of a logic puzzle. And a lot of times if you see things that are opposite, so like B is place a chest tube on the left and C is place a chest tube on the right. Even if you didn't know anything about this, it usually comes down to those two answers. And then you could think, well, most of these hernias happen on the left side, right? So you don't want to put, like you said before, a chest tube into the left and put it right into like an intestine or a liver or something. So if you're going to put a chest tube in, it makes more sense to be on the right. And this is a tension pneumothorax. And um, unfortunately, like severe CDH, despite intensive treatments, it actually still has a very high morbidity and mortality. Um, but once again, we used to go right to the OR with these and now they're more stabilized. So even though it's a neonatal emergency, it's not like you have to go to the OR like right now. Okay. Another question, CDH. A premature male neonate born at 34 weeks of gestation is scheduled to undergo emergency repair of a left-sided diaphragmatic hernia. Which of the following vessels could be cannulated for preductal arterial blood sampling? Sampling. A, femoral artery, B, umbilical artery, C, right radial artery, D, left radial artery. And so this would be the same if you were talking about just trying to get the most proximal blood that's coming out of the heart. So it's first going to go to the right subclavian and, and so to the right arm. And so you want to do the right radial artery. And that 
first branch off the aorta is going to come off before the ductus arteriosus. So that's why you want to do that. Yeah, the right. And again, remember we talked about opposites, right versus left. This is one of the things that I've just, this question comes up again and again, not just in this scenario, like the pre-ductal. It's something I've just memorized. It's a good thing to know. Yeah. Okay. So last question when it comes to CDH. Appropriate management of a neonate born with CDH should include A, insertion of an orogastric tube, B, expansion of the hypoplastic lung with positive pressure ventilation, C, hyperventilation to keep the PaCO2 below 40, D, rapid transport to the OR for surgical correction. Yeah, and this is, as you said, maybe a ways back, the answer here would have been D when they would have treated this as a surgical emergency that needed to be repaired right away, but not anymore. And C. Right. We used to have this very aggressive hyperventilate, intubate and not C anymore. Yeah. Right. So that lets you get rid of C and D by knowing that those are kind of the old answers. And then, you know, you definitely don't want to be super aggressive trying to expand a hypoplastic lung because it's not going to work. And then you might blow out the other lung. So you want to insert an orogastric tube here for no other reason than by process of elimination. But obviously, if that stomach is up in the chest, it's only going to help you to decompress it. Right. And just for me, so I finished residency 12 years ago. And for me, it's just amazing how much progress we've made in that decade and how much change in the way we treat these kids in the in utero treatment. So it's actually really kind of cool to see the progression because it's not often you see this much change in a decade in medicine. So I, I thought that was actually kind of fun for me to see that. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on to our next keyword, which is tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia. So historically, what they've tested is where you want to put that endotracheal tube, especially when you have like a fistula, the connection between the esophagus and the trachea. And then what other abnormalities is this associated with, like in terms of like syndromes, okay? Um, so just key points here. So the first one is that uh, I'm, I'm going to say TEF and EA just to make it easier for tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia. So a TEF is a congenital defect. It's thought to be the result of a foregut malformation. Don't really know why it happens. It's associated with um, EA. The malformation can be present in various formations and they're categorized A through E. I remember this being on my test. Like I, they showed me pictures and I had to pick, pick out which one was which, right? So type A is the isolated EA. About 8% of all EA TEF babies just have the esophageal atresia. So it's like a blind couch and then the distal portion of the esophagus. 90% of these are type C. So a type C, it's a fistula between the trachea and the lower esophageal segment in conjunction with the upper esophageal atresia. So you have esophagus, which is kind of like a blind pouch, and then you have your trachea coming down, and then you have the second part of the esophagus that doesn't connect to the top part, and that connects to the trachea. Um, So due to the connection between the trachea and the gastric tract, it's the intubation and mechanical ventilation during surgical intervention that's probably the most challenging part for an anesthesiologist. Um, The next key point is that one of the foremost concerns is the avoidance of ventilation to the fistula with resultant gastric distension and then inadequate pulmonary ventilation. Uh, A hallmark in the airway management of these patients, just like CDH, is to try to maintain spontaneous ventilation until the fistula tract is ligated. Not always 100% possible in the OR, but that's really what you're trying to do, okay? Um, The next key point is that TEFs are very commonly associated with the syndrome Vader and Vactoral. Is that how you say it? V-A-C-T-E-R-L. It's it's Vader. So Vader is vertebral anomalies, anal atresia, tracheoesophageal fistula, esophageal atresia, and then renal kidney or anomalies. And then if you're adding on the vectoral, it's cardiac and then limb. 
uh, and that's a really, really common question. I've seen that out a lot in the past few years about that um, syndrome. Okay. Yeah. They'll ask like what else is likely to be associated yes, with. Yep. Exactly. Right. Uh, so about 35% have cardiac disease with uh, a TEFEA and it can be VSD, ASD, tetraliate flow. It can be any of those. Um, and TEF repair, it's urgent and it may be emergent if the respiratory insufficiency is so severe that you require ventilator support. But it's again, it's not like you have to go to the OR the minute the kiddo was born. Okay. So here's some questions about a TEFCA. So a 2.2 kilogram, six-hour-old neonate is to undergo gastrostomy followed by a repair of a tracheoesophageal fistula. During induction with sevoflurane, air, and oxygen, the abdomen becomes descended. Appropriate management is to A, intubate and assist spontaneous ventilation, B, intubate and control ventilation, C, insert an orogastric tube, D, allow the patient to breathe spontaneously by mask and telgastrostomy, E, control ventilation by mask and telgastrostomy. So we're assuming here that they are being uh, undergoing an inhaled induction, and that means yes. they're breathing on their own, and you're seeing right. the abdomen become distended. So presumably what's happening here is that the air they're breathing in is going presum- uh, preferentially into the, um, or at least some of it is going into the uh, GI tract, and so you need to stop that. But the only way to do that is going to be to intubate them and place that tube past that um, fistula. And so right. you're going to want to intubate them. And then the question is whether to do controlled or assisted. And as you said earlier, Jillian, you really want to do assisted spontaneous ventilation if you can. And so you would intubate, this is choice A, you would intubate, assist their spontaneous ventilation, and hopefully that'll take care of it. If you had to, you could control their ventilation, but ideally you would allow them to breathe spontaneously. Yeah. And if they're not telling you what type of fistula is, it is, you should just assume that it's the most common one, which is um, C. And that's the one where you like, you don't want to put an OG tube in because you just have this like blind pouch proximal esophagus, right? And then you have the distal part of the esophagus that connects to the trachea. So you want to intubate and try to get the tube past that, like you said, past the fistula. So if they're not telling you exactly what type, type, you should just assume that. Okay. And that comes to our next question. So I put this in here and I know you can't see pictures, but I know on my board exam, I actually had pictures and um, you should really look them up and just draw out A through E or A through F a couple of times. Because once you go through the order of it, it actually makes a lot of sense. It's not that hard to remember them. Um, And I really encourage you to, because it's a really common question that you'll see out there. So I wrote it this way. Obviously you can't see the picture and I'm going to give you descriptions, but it says which figure of the esophageal atresia or tracheoesophageal fistula is the most common. So A is type A. And so type A is pictured, which is an esophageal atresia without a fistula. So just a bacon, basically a broken esophagus. Um, E, which is a tracheoesophageal fistula without an EA, also called, it's also called type H, which is confusing. Then there's type C, um, which is uh, esophageal atresia with a distal tracheoesophageal fistula. And then there's type D, which is an esophageal atresia with a proximal and a distal tracheoesophageal fistula. And as you said, the most common is type C. So C will be the answer here. Yeah, but they're not always going to do that. They're not always going to line up like, answer choice A is a type A, answer choice B is type A, they will mix it up. So you need to actually know what it looks like. Right. Uh, And again, type C accounts for almost 90% of all cases. So it's hands down the most common one. And if you just are going to learn one of those, learn that one. Yep. Uh, So next question, the most common initial symptom of EA and TEF is A, respiratory distress at delivery, B, projectile vomiting, C, hypoxia, D, recurgitation during feeding. And so most of these, remember, including the most common one, has that blind pouch uh, of an esophagus. And so you're going to see regurgitation during feeding because it's got nowhere to go. Exactly. 
Uh, next question. So which of the following is the least appropriate technique for induction of general anesthesia in a newborn for surgical repair of TEF? A, awake tracheal awake tracheal intubation, B, inhalational induction with spontaneous ventilation and tracheal intubation, C, inhalational induction using positive pressure bag and mass ventilation and tracheal intubation, D, rapid sequence IV induction and tracheal intubation. And again, least appropriate. Right. And so you, you know, the one thing you don't want to do here is use positive pressure through their natural airway, their mouth and nose, because it's going to go through that fistula. So the rest of them all involve being intubated, which allows you to direct the air the way where you want it to go. C is the one that is just bagging and using positive pressure. So that's the one you want to avoid because it's going to inflate the uh, GI tract. Yeah, exactly. And of the keywords that we've done thus far, I think this one is probably the highest yield, uh, tracheoesophageal fistula and the uh, esophageal Atresia, common, common questions. Yeah, comes up a lot. Um, so the next one is neonatal lobar emphysema. I couldn't find a whole lot on this. The last I saw that it was tested was actually in 2012. I do OB anesthesia, so I see all these like babies being born, and I haven't actually seen this in a really long time. Um, so just a couple of key points here. Congenital lobar emphysema is a disorder of lung parenchyma that results in hyperinflation of the lung and respiratory distress in infants from newborn to six months of age. And then the next key point is that the primary concern with anesthesia is managing the airway in an infant with pre-existing respiratory compromise without making the respiratory distress worse. Anesthesia can be induced with volatile or IV agents. And the classic teaching is to use inhalational agents and maintain spontaneous ventilation. See like a theme here? (laughs) Uh, Positive pressure ventilation may cause more respiratory compromise, so more harm than good. So here's a question that I found. An infant with congenital lobar emphysema is scheduled for thoracotomy. Which of the following should be included in the anesthetic management of this infant? A, helium-oxygen-inspired gas mixture. B, nitrous oxide administration. C, positive pressure ventilation. D, prophylactic placement of a chest tube. E, spontaneously ventilation until the chest is open. And as you said, you, you want to try, if you can, to maintain spontaneous ventilation. So E would be the answer here. Right. And I can't think of a single time where you put in a prophylactic chest tube, can you? No, I, I think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, I'm sure there are times, but it seems like that would be an extreme. Yeah. And the other question that I've seen, I couldn't find one, but I know that I've seen them out there is um, with uh, like, if it was asking something differently, which of the following is totally avoided? Nitrous is actually contraindicated in these surgeries because it can rapidly diffuse in a closed cavity leading to further compression and immediate sinal shift. So it's just kind of something to tuck in there and know. I don't think that neonatal lobar emphysema is a super high yield topic, but again, it's one of the keywords. So I just wanted to quickly go through it in case... You know, you hear my voice in the back of your head when you're taking the test and you can get one more question correct. Okay, moving on. The next one is pyloric stenosis. And I think this is also one of the higher yield topics. I actually remember a question on my written board. It was about the electrolyte abnormalities of this. And that's what you're going to see. You're going to see like fluid therapy, electrolyte disorders, metabolic abnormalities. That's probably the more common questions. I don't know if you remember from your days of studying pyloric stenosis. Oh, yeah, this comes up a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. So pyloric stenosis, it is a medical emergency, but it's not a surgical emergency. And that's important to know. You do not want to operate until there's been adequate fluid and electrolyte resuscitation. And the next one is the cardinal findings in pyloric stenosis is dehydration, metabolic alkalosis, hypochloremia, and hypokalemia. So the loss of gastric fluids leads to volume depletion and loss of sodium, chloride, acid, and potassium. And that's why you get a hypokalemic, hypochloremic metabolic acid alkalosis. And I couldn't find a question, but I know, know that they asked that 
over and over. Okay. Uh, so a couple of questions to practice pyloric stenosis. Infants with untreated pyloric stenosis are at increased risk for each of the following except A, congenital heart disease, B, dehydration, C, hypokalemia, D, increased gastric acidity, E, metabolic alkalosis. Yeah. And so you went through these dehydration for sure, hypokalemia for sure, metabolic alkalosis for sure. Interestingly, increased gastric acidity is um, a little tricky because you're losing uh, H plus, right? You're losing acid. And so you might think it'd be less. I'm get- And the answer is cl- it's a congenital heart disease. They're not at increased risk for that. So the answer is, hey, I'm guessing it's not increased gastric acidity. That's not the answer because there must be some, the fact that they're losing so much uh, hydrogen ions must put their kind of production in overdrive, I guess. I don't know if you have thoughts on so that, Julie. At increased risk for, so they, they're not at increased risk for increased gastric acidity, right? Because it's untreated or at increased risk for each of the following except. Right. So they are so at risk not, for all of the, so that would mean they are at risk for increased oh, gastric right, acidity. Right. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just not 100% because, sure why. I think because you're losing it from the pyloric stenosis that your stomach is just like making Churning it, it out. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next one. So I hate those accepts. And uh, it's good that we had that little back and forth there because from what I've been told, they're doing away with these. Yes. Yeah. Sh- you should not see any more of the, all of the right. following accept yeah. on tests. Yeah. So a five-week-old male infant is brought to the emergency room with projectile vomiting. At the time of admission, the patient is lethargic with a, with a respiratory rate of 16 breaths per minute and has had no urine output in the preceding three hours. A diagnosis of pyloric stenosis is made and the infant is brought to the OR for a Pyloromyotomy. I hope I said that right. Sounds good. <laughs> the to most me. appropriate anesthetic management would be A, awake intubation after placing an oral gastric tube, B, inhalational induction with sevoborin with cardco pressure, C, awake saphenous IV catheter or an IO needle placement, followed by a rapid sequence induction with ketamine, atropine, and rocuronium, or D, postponed surgery. So this is a little bit of a trick question because, as you said up front, this is not a surgical emergency. This infant is clearly not medically stabilized. They're lethargic. Um, they haven't been making urine, so they're clearly dehydrated, et cetera. So this this is not the appropriate time to take this infant to surgery. They need to be stabilized from a medical standpoint, and then they can have surgery. So the answer should be D, postpone surgery. Right. So again, it's a medical, not surgical emergency. And I could see this asking this on a written test, especially the electrolyte abnormalities, but I could also see this being an oral board stem, and they want to see that you're not going to get pushed around by a surgeon. That you like, nope, not appropriate management. This is not a, like a surgical emergency. And then then they'll say, after you have stabilized the infant and all electrolytes and fluid management's okay, then we're going to proceed. And that's how the stem would proceed. So I could see it going both ways. Okay. So the next keyword we have is necrotizing enterocolitis. And again, in this whole list of keywords, I think this is probably on the lower yield side, uh, but you still see it from time to time. So the key point is that necrotizing enterocolitis is the most common gastrointestinal emergency in neonatal intensive care units, making it one of the leading causes of long-term disability in preterm infants. It's more common in preterm infants associated with low birth weight, so a birth rate less than 1,500 grams, um, so really the kind of micropremies. And the next key point is that the most common presentation of neck is intolerance to enteral feeding, abdominal tenderness, tenderness and distension, bloody diarrhea, lethargy. And you can tell that by reduced spontaneous motor activity, respiratory distress, shock, and body temperature instability. And really the pathophysiology of neck is just generally poorly understood, but it can be a true surgical emergency. Um, so here's a question that I found about neck. So this is a 
1,150 gram 10-day-old infant undergoing a bowel resection for necrotizing enterocolitis. Heart rate is 200 and blood pressure measured through a femoral artery catheter is 45 over 24. What is the most appropriate next step? Administration of A, calcium gluconate, B, epinephrine, C, esmolol, D, fentanyl, E, normal saline solution. Yeah, well, obviously, if we saw those vitals in an adult, we would call a code. Um, and <laughs> I'm guessing, though I could absolutely be wrong, that they're not that abnormal for a, a, a preemie. I don't know. You probably know better than I do. So heart rate like should be like around 120, 140. So 200 is high, but not like code high. And then a blood pressure like 60 over 30 is better. So, so this 45 is over 24 is low. Yeah. yeah. So knowing that, <laughs> sounds like this infant probably could use some fluid. Um, and, uh, and so probably E is going to be the answer here. Yeah. So this is, this is like sepsis, right? It's very common. And this is how they present. And I was telling you back when I was a CA3 in the old buildings having to start this case, in, uh, we didn't have a, a peds attending. I didn't have a peds fellow. It was me and I shouldn't say names, but I will. It was me and Alan Gostachok. <laughs> And it was terrifying, this poor little baby. And so if you ever find yourself in this situation, I actually went and got the NICU fellow and they were so extraordinarily helpful because I just didn't have much experience with this type of patient. This poor baby was just so, so, so sick. And basically with a lot of fluid management because they are just really septic. All right, hang in there. We'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back with the next question with Dr. Isaac. Um, so here's the next question. Necrotizing enterocolitis has all of the following characteristics except a most have thrombocytopenia and a prolonged PT and activated and a PTT. So coagulopathic be commonly associated with decreased cardiac output in the presence of fetal asphyxia or postnatal respiratory complications. C umbilical artery catheters are useful to assess acid base status. D occurs in 10 to 20% of newborns weighing less than 1,500 grams. So which it's an accept again. So basically it's true, false, right? So you're trying to find the one that's false. Right. So, you know, this is, I think, a quite a difficult question, actually, and yes. you may or may not yes. know these things. D is kind of an easy one because you did talk about that. It tends to happen in um, really, really small infants. So that you can say is true. So that means it's not the answer because it's, this is all the yeah. following except. And unfortunately, it's quite, it's quite common, quite, yeah. quite common in these like less than 25 weekers. Yeah. Right. Most have thrombocytopenia and a prolonged PT uh, and APTT. That seems reasonable. They're bleeding. Right. Yeah, they're bleeding. They're not doing well. Commonly associated with decreased cardiac output in the presence of fetal asphyxia or postnatal respiratory complications. Um, Again, that seems probably reasonable in these micro preemies. Um, And so you're left with the umbilical. 
Yeah. The idea there is like the gut is probably not being adequately perfused. Like something happened where you weren't perfusing and that led to the, um, the hit. Right. Um, and so then you're left with the umbilical artery catheters. Uh, and I think there's something uh, about if, you know, if you're already having bleeding and, and, and um, ischemia in the gut, you don't want that a blood flow uh, compromised. So you don't want to have an umbilical artery catheter in there. Yeah. So I actually, I did look this up because I wasn't a hundred percent sure on the answer. And so what I found is that they can be very useful in newborns, but they should be removed if neck develops because they can actually compromise mesenteric blood flow. And then interestingly enough, an umbilical artery cannulation is actually a risk factor for developing neck. And it's not clear if it's causal. It might be like, these are just really sick babies and that's why they have it. And that's why they get neck versus does the catheter itself cause it. Um, but you don't want one in a baby with neck is the bottom line. Okay. Um, so the next two words we're going to do, I'm going to do them separately, but in the outline, they're mixed together and it's gastroschisis and umphalocele. And of all the keywords that we're doing today, I would say this is in the top three of like the high yield. I would say for the ones today, it's the tracheoesophageal fistula, pyloric stenosis, the umphalocele gastroschisis, and then maybe CDH. But this is probably up there in the more common and higher yield than some of the other keywords that we're looking at today. Um, so just some key points here. So the way they've tested gastroschisis commonly is pulmonary complications of gastroschisis and then abdominal closure and complications with abdominal closure. And that's probably what they're still like commonly testing today. So just a key point here is that gastroschisis, it's a periumbilical defect. It's resulting from the occlusion of the mesenteric artery. And the big contrast to an emphalocele is that in gastroschisis, the visceral contents are not covered by peritoneum. It's like a really bad hernia where your intestines and sometimes other organs are like sticking out there, but it's not covered at all by peritoneum. Um, neonates with gastroschisis, they're a high risk for inflama inflammation of the exposed viscera, as you could guess, edema, and then a dilated and foreshortened gut. Uh, so a few questions here. A 2,600-gram neonate is to undergo surgical repair of a small gastroschisis. The infant is pre-oxygenated with 100% oxygen. Arterial hemoglobin desaturation is noted during laryngoscopy after a rapid sequence induction. Which of the following is the most likely cause? A, high fetal hemoglobin concentration. B, high ratio of oxygen consumption to functional residual capacity. C, low functional residual capacity in milliliters per kilogram. D, poor thoracic compliance. E, patent ductus arteriosus. So as you said, uh, these uh, patients um, have this, uh, their gut essentially exposed. It, it can often be inflamed. It can be um, edematous. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm going to say here probably the, they're going to be utilizing more oxygen than normal. And also, of course, little newborns are going to have a relatively um, low FRC. It's why they, even healthy ones, desat very quickly. And so if you're using a lot of oxygen, you just don't have a big FRC, you're going to um, you know, be at risk for desaturation. So I think B, high ratio of oxygen consumption to functional residual capacity is probably the right um, answer here. It is, you might think, well, why not C, low functional residual capacity in mLs per kilo, and that is because by weight, it's not particularly, it's not that it's low, right? By weight, it's no, it's just that they don't weigh anything. So overall, they have a small uh, FRC. So uh, that's uh, how I'd go there. And I think even if this wasn't like, a, this is a small gastroschisis, I think it was just asking, why do neonates desat quickly? It's a pretty good explanation as to why they do. Right. Okay. Right. And uh, that may and be the case, actually. It may, it may yeah. be that there's nothing 
uh, unique about the gastroschisis. I was hypothesizing that maybe the inflamed gut was using more oxygen, but maybe not. Maybe they're just getting at the fact that small newborns are going to desac quickly no matter what. Yeah. And they tend to have fine lungs. Their lungs are fine like they and they have good compliance. So, yeah. uh, so next question. A, ne- a newborn infant is undergoing repair of gastroschisis during closure of the abdominal wall. Ventilatory pressures and central venous pressure are increased markedly. The most appropriate management is to A, administer a bronchodilator, B, decrease tidal volume and increase ventilatory rate, C, increase the neuromuscular block, D, increase the depth of anesthesia, E, ask the surgeon to reopen the abdomen. Yeah. So what this sounds like to me is that they've developed uh, compartment syndrome. And now this does get at uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. So this does get at what you were saying earlier, inflamed, edematous, bowel is now being shoved back into the abdomen yeah. and then that abdomen's being right. closed. This is true of uh, you know uh, an adult patient with an open abdomen who then gets closed, right? You have to really be careful because that pressure in the abdomen can lead to abdominal compartment syndrome. And that's what's going on here. So you'd want to ask the surgeon to reopen the abdomen here. And I found a very similar question in a different resource, which just goes to show you like how commonly this question is asked. If you see the same question asked in multiple places, like, you're going to most likely see it on the test. But it's an infant becomes cyanotic and hypotensive after ventilatory pressures increase to 45 centimeters of water during closure of the abdominal wall at the end of a gastroschisis repair. The most appropriate next step is to A, administer a muscle relaxant, B, administer 5% dextrose in LR solution, 10 milliliters per kilogram, C, change the endotracheal tube, D, ask the surgeon to insert a chest tube, E, ask the surgeon to reopen the abdomen. Yeah, so the same thing. And, you know, certainly giving a lot of fluid is only going to make this worse and cause more edema, so you wouldn't want to do that. But yeah, asking the surgeon to reopen the abdomen makes sense here. Yeah. And the lungs are fine, right? So the likelihood of attention pneumothorax is really low. If this was right. like a CDH, I'd be thinking much more along those lines, but there's nothing about a gastroschisis that uh, inhibits the development of the lungs. So you right. shouldn't really be so worried about that. And my memory is that a gastroschisis, even though it sounds worse because it's just the, the bowel is just out there, it's not actually covered <laughs> yeah. by anything, actually is has a better prognosis. It's not usually associated with other abnormalities, whereas exactly. an seal. No. Right, emphysema, mm-hmm. which which seems better because everything's still contained by the peritoneum, but right. actually is associated with a lot more problems. Exactly, gastroschisis is more like just like a a bad hernia, right? Yeah. it's not. It can be associated with other things, but typically no. Whereas right. an emphysema is very highly associated with other congenital defects and syndromes. Right, which gets us to emphysema. So they t- actually test that. They do test like its association with heart disease and other associated conditions. So that was actually tested in 2020. So that's a question that you know is circulating out there as well as the heart disease. And then they like to compare and contrast emphysemas to gastroschisis. And that was tested in 2016 and 2018. Uh, so the key point here is that an omphalocele is a failure of gut migration from the yolk sac to the abdomen. So in contrast to gastroschisis, patients with omphaloceles have peritoneum covering their otherwise exposed viscera, but about 40 up to 60% of patients with omphaloceles will also have other congenital anomalies. So most commonly a congenital heart disease and actually bladder extrophy. So those are the two ones that are commonly seen with omphalocele. So here's some questions about omphalocele. So a 2.8 kilogram, eight hour old infant undergoes laparotomy for a rupture. Ooh, that's no good. Omphalocele. Following primary closure of the abdominal wall, arterial blood gases are a PaO2 of 40 with an FiO2 of 0.6 a PaCO2 of 55, and a pH of 7.1. Blood pressure is 30 over 20. After increasing the FiO2, the most appropriate action would be to A, obtain a chest x-ray immediately, B, withdraw the endotracheal tube one centimeter, C, assess the patient for coexisting congenital heart disease, D, administer, administer LR 
15 milliliters per kilogram, E, ask the surgeon to reopen the wound. So, you know, uh, again, this is uh, an abdomen that um, has had a lot of trauma. It has been, you had a ruptured uh, emphyloceal. Certainly you're going to have a variety of, a lot of swelling, et cetera. And again, um, the um, abdomen was closed primarily, as it says in the stem. And so you've got to think again about, could this be a problem with pressure in the abdomen um, with that kind of low blood pressure, worrying about venous return? So I think, again, asking the surgeon to reopen the, the wound is what makes sense. Uh, so the next one is in calculating the fluid requirements for a newborn undergoing repair of an omphalocele, the third space loss should be replaced by A, 0.9% saline solution, B, 2.5% dextrose and 0.45% saline solution, C, 5% dextrose in LR, D, 5% dextrose in water, E, 5% dextrose and 0.25% saline solution. Well, which of these things is not like the other, right? right. So four exactly. of the five have dextrose. <laughs> have dextrose. Um, I, I am not going to pretend to understand why specifically you wouldn't give dextrose here, but, uh, I, you know, I think it, it's probably the answer probably is going to be normal saline because the other ones are all various forms of dextrose. Uh, so I would probably go with a normal saline. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong. And since you do critical care, but with dextrose is basically just water, right? Once you break down the sugar. So doesn't that make third spacing worse? Yeah, so that's a good point. So it 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 is as going in, uh, you know, D five W for example is going to be relatively isotonic, but the the dextrose will then be metabolized and you'll be left with water. So that may be um, here is uh, saying you you would just end up with more third space fluid. Right. That was my thought. Yeah. Again, we're not pediatricians, but <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> All right. Next question. So a 2.8 kilogram newborn undergoes repair of a moderate side on phallocele. IV fluid is administered at 14 milliliter per hour, 45 minutes after beginning surgery and before reduction of the omphalocele. Arterial blood pressure decreases from 80 over 40 to 55 over 30. SAO2 is 98% at an FiO2 of 0.5. Breast sounds are equal bilaterally. Which of the following is the most likely explanation for the decrease in blood pressure? A, associated congenital cardiac defect. B, compression of the lungs by the abdominal contents. C, inadequate fluid administration. D, pneumothorax E, sepsis. Yeah, so, you know, I'd have to actually go back and try to calculate whether that's appropriate fluid administration. 14 mLs per hour seems like really a small amount, <laughs> but this is also a small infant. Um, and uh, so it, it, there's no, re I mean, they, they may well have an associated cardi cardio, uh, congenital cardiac defect, although it doesn't, there's no, uh, no reason to think that all of a sudden 45 minutes into right. surgery and before any reduction of emphalocele that that has all of a sudden acted up. So that seems unlikely. Compression of the lungs by the abdominal contents. Uh, again, they're not up in the chest, they're out of the body. So it's that doesn't make reduction. sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and pneumothorax, again, um, it could be the case, but there's not and it's necessarily any reason to think that. And, and this and is more commonly. Equal. They're right. telling you the breast sounds equal bilaterally. They, they tell you that. So that rules, more or less rules it out. Again, no particular reason to think all of a sudden this infant is septic. So most likely in, inadequate fluid administration. Um, yeah. and, and I think if we think back, right, isn't it, isn't the rule uh, 10, uh, mLs per kilo for the first, uh, you know, up to the first s some number of kilos. But th this, I think this infant should be on almost 30 mLs per hour, not 14. Now, I could be wrong about that. So please don't everybody write in and tell me um, that that's incorrect. But I I'm pretty sure that 14 for that size infant is not enough. And so um, I would probably go with C, inadequate fluid. So with the lymphalocele, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but when the baby is born and with gastroschisis, they have like a 
a bag that they put over to keep right. in like the the uh, heat and moisture. And once that comes off, like when you're in the OR, this is basically like an open belly. So there is a lot of fluid shift. And a lot of insensible losses. Yeah, too. exactly. But you're not really likely to get sepsis like because it's covered with peritoneum, but there is quite a bit of insensible loss here. So yeah. I think that's what they're getting at. And key is that equal breast sounds bilaterally and it's before closure. Right. Oh, and you know what? Actually, so now it now I'm it's coming back to me. We don't actually use this has been kind of debunked in adults. The four it's the four two one rule, right? So four mLs per kilo would be eight, and then uh, you know another kind of twelve. So that's probably actually using the four two one rule. That that may be appropriate. That fourteen mLs per hour. So I think you're right. Probably what they're getting at is that you can't just do traditional maintenance fluid when you have an emphysema because they have all these insensible losses. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the last one for emphalocele, this is a four kilogram, three hour old newborn with macrosomia and large fontanelles is scheduled for surgical repair of an emphalocele. Physical exam reveals macroglossia, but no other anomalies. Which of the following is likely to occur in this patient? A, hyperkalemia, B, metabolic acidosis, C, hypoxemia, D, hypoglycemia. And this is a tough one because you've got to figure out what syndrome is, what's going on. And I, I, yeah, I certainly do not know what syndrome this is. Um, so I probably wouldn't be able to get this question right. Um, but without knowing the answer, uh, I don't, I don't, you'd have to, as you said, identify the macrosomia, the large fontanelles, the emphalocele and put that together. Um, and so. We, and the macroglossia. Yeah. yeah, it's right. So why don't you tell us what the syndrome is? It's a uh, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. And it's yes. uh, very commonly associated with emphalocele. And like we said, emphalocele is actually have a lot of syndromes that they can be associated with and a lot of cardiac issues. Um, so Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, just to remind you, because I had to look it up, is characterized by anomphalocele, organomegaly, macrosomia, large fontanelles, and macroglossia. You can also see polycythemia and hypoglycemia. Um, so I think I said the answer is hypoglycemia, but they also want you to know that they can be difficult to intubate because of the macroglossia. Okay, so last question here. Congenital syndromes frequently associated with cardiac abnormalities include all of the following except A is a TEF, B is a meningomyelocele, C is omphalocele, and D is gastroschisis. Yeah, and so like we said before, gastroschisis actually is not usually associated with other abnormalities, so that's going to be the answer. The rest um, definitely can be associated with cardiac abnormalities. I mean, gastroschisis can be, but it's much less likely. Like less frequent, exactly. Right, right. Much less likely, yeah. Um, so the next one is RDS, respiratory distress syndrome. Interestingly enough, this hasn't been tested since 2008. I don't think it's a super high yield one, but um, just to go through it, respiratory distress, distress syndrome is caused by a deficiency of surfactant. So it's basically a kiddo that hasn't had enough time in gestation to produce enough surfactant um, before delivery. And so when you don't have surfactant, it's just difficult to generate inspiratory pressure needed to inflate alveoli. So you get progressive uh, atelectasis. And so you get, once you have that diffuse atelectasis, you get the high resistance, low compliance, and then hypoxemia from the BQ mismatch. So a couple of questions that I found, uh, one, and they're usually regarding um, surfactant or like surface tension, but the most beneficial effect of continuous positive airway pressure in a newborn with respiratory distress syndrome is A, increased functional residual capacity, B, decreased airway resistance, C, promotion of surfactant formation, D, increased alveolar PO2, E, maintenance of functional closure of the foramen ovale. Right. And so um, 
when you have uh, RDS, as you said, lacking surfactant, you're going to have uh, collapse because surfactant is what keeps the alveoli open. So you're going to have really quite reduced uh, functional residual capacity. So by using CPAP, you can help open some of those alveoli up and increase your FRC. So A would be the answer here. Okay. Uh, and the last question that I could find about RDS is, which of the following statements concerning relationships among alveolar pressure, volume, and surface tension is true? A, surface tension of surfactant decreases as alveolar volume decreases. B, surface tensions of water and of surfactant behave similarly as volume decreases. C, changes in alveolar surface tension with volume are the same during expansion as during contraction. D, pressure in the alveolus is inversely related to surface tension. Yeah, I'm reaching back here. I think surface tension <laughs> of surfactant decreases as alveolar volume decreases. Uh, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, so water and surfactant actually behave very differently. Water has like a interacts like has a lot more inter, uh, ionic interactions than surfactant, so they actually behave quite differently. Um, and then pressure in the alveolus, alveolus is actually not in what's the opposite of inverse? Versely. <laughs> Related Directly related. Unfortunately, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so the last keyword is myelomeningocele. And again, like in dividing these half and half, half high yield and half not high yield, I think this is in the higher yield end of these um, eight keywords here. So meningomyelocele, they test what associated anomalies can be with myelomeningocele and then its um, association with RNLQRE. Those are the ones that come up. Um, again, in the past 10, 12 years, we've made huge, huge, huge uh, strides in how we've treated this. We always used to wait until the baby was born. And this is actually still considered a fairly true um, emergency, surgical emergency, because you don't want to get meningitis. But now we're doing a lot of in utero meningomyelocele repairs where you actually go in um, to the uterus and close these deficits weeks before the baby's born. And it's shown that it actually helps information of the brain, helps prevent the RNL Chiari malformation. So just some key points. Myelomeningocele results from an abnormality infusion of the uh, neural tube during the first month of gestation. And the failure of the neural tube closure can result in a sac-like herniation of the meninges. So that's a meningocele or a herniation of neural elements along with the meninges, which is a myelomeningocele. Uh, myelomeningocele is their most commonly found in the lumbosacral area, but they can result at any level. And you can get loss of motor and sen sensory function below that level of lesion. And that can include bla bladder, bowel, and sexual function. Uh, repair of myelomeningocele is a surgical emergency and neonates should be operated on in the first few days after birth. And then the next key point is that nearly all infants with the myelomeningocele have supraspinal neurological manifestations of the disease process. And it's almost always like a Arnold QRA2 malformation and they can get um, obstructions and almost all of them need VP, VP shunts. So those are the more common questions. So the questions that I found regarding myelomeningocele, the first one here is a four-year-old child with a myelomeningocele and a VP shunt is scheduled for bladder augmentation. One year ago, hypotension and bronchospasm occurred during laparotomy for placement of a feeding gastrostomy and responded to fluids and epinephrine. At that time, anesthesia was induced with propofol. The trachea was intubated with a polyvinyl tracheal tube following administration of succinylcholine and anesthesia was maintained with sevoflurane and nitrous oxide. No diagnostic tests were performed after that incident. Which of the following should be avoided during the bladder augmentation? A, later, latex gloves, P, B, polyvinyl tracheal tubes, C, sevoflurane, D, succinylcholine, uh, E, propofol. Yeah, you know, I again, man, am I reaching back here? But I think <laughs> that I remember uh, these being associated with latex allergy. So I think probably um, that bronchospasm, and certainly uh, even if all you think is well, hypotension and bronchospasm, that sure sounds like 
uh, anaphylaxis. Uh, if you think, well, which of these things is really um, prone, we know to cause anaphylaxis, latex is a big one. So I would probably go with latex gloves here. And this is not necessarily unique to kids that have myelomeningocele. It's any kid that's had multiple surgeries with exposure to latex. So like the latter extrophy kids is another example. Um, those are, that's the other one that just comes to mind. Gotcha. Right, so maybe question. that's it. I, and I may have been remembering incorrectly about there being an association. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's just that they have repeat surgeries. Uh, 36 hours after primary repair of a meningomyelocele, a term newborn has frequent periods of apnea lasting 25 seconds and associated with an oxygen desaturation to 80%. The most likely explanation is A, hyperglycemia, B, loss of cerebrospinal fluid, D, residual anesthetic effect, C, sorry, I missed one, (laughs) C, obstructive hydrocephalus, and then E, normal postoperative events. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, these patients are very commonly have some a block uh, in their uh, ventricles and can therefore have obstructive hydrocephalus. When we're talking here about frequent periods of apnea, it sounds like probably central apnea. So obstructive hydrocephalus is probably your most likely uh, uh, go-to here. Uh, and then the last question of the day here is a delay in surgery for 24 to 48 hours for preoperative stabilization and preparation is acceptable in each of the following neonatal conditions, except A, biliary atresia, B, diaphragmatic hernia, C, meningomyelocele, D, pyloric stenosis, E, tracheoesophageal fistula. So we already talked about how pyloric stenosis and tracheoesophageal fistula are not necessarily surgical emergencies that need to go directly to the OR, biliary atresia, and diaphragmatic hernia. We also talked about diaphragmatic hernia, biliary atresia we didn't talk about, but that also is, is uh, I believe, not an immediate surgical emergency. Um, meningomyelocele uh, certainly can be or is, and so that would be the one that you don't want to delay. Right. So in the list, emergencies in the newborn, most of these are medical emergencies, very few surgical emergencies, myelomeningocele being the one that you really can't delay because you risk meningitis. But again, just to kind of summarize in these keywords for emergencies in the newborn, if you're going to see questions, my guess is going to be about a CDH, a tracheoesophageal fistula, pyloric stenosis, or omphalocele gastroschisis. Those are probably the higher yield ones. Fantastic. Jillian, this has been great. Another really high yield keyword episode. Let's turn to our random recommendation portion of the episode. Do you have a random recommendation to recommend to the, to the t- audience? Oh, sure. So I'm currently uh, reading the auto, no auto, the biography of Eleanor by David uh, McAllis. It's about Eleanor Roosevelt. Fascinating. I didn't nice. really know much about her, but she was really like a you know, the, the woman behind the man. Yeah. Who's the author? <laughs> um, David McAllis, M-I, it's like Michael with the I-S at the end. Nice. And it's called All right. Eleanor. It's actually here. Yeah. Yeah. She was just, I mean, I haven't read that book, but, uh, but the, the um, books I've read that have included information about her, she just sounds like such a fascinating, incredible woman. So that's really a great recommendation. Um, I, since I have you on, am going to recommend a, a book that you uh, recommended to me called Hamnet. Um, it's a book by Maggie um, O'Farrell, uh, and you had recommended it. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think you recommended it on this show. So I, did. Um, I mm-hmm. will, I guess, make a re-recommend it because you, <laughs> thanks to you, I went back and read it. Um, it was yeah. It's really good. It's about, as, as I'm sure you described last time, it's about... Uh, it's a novel, it's, it's, uh, but it is about, uh, presumably about uh, Shakespeare. I think he did lose his... Uh, his son, he right? Twins. He had a daughter and then twins, and he lost his son. 
Right. In the plague. Mm -hmm. So that's true that he lost his son, but the book is kind of hypothesizing maybe, you know, some of the interpersonal interactions that would have happened between him and his wife and their family and how this would have affected them. And it's really beautifully written and and really um, brilliant writing, right? It's brilliant writing, really creative story. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, will second that recommendation. Um, All right, Jillian, thanks so much. We'll have you back on the show soon. All right. Sounds great. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Dr. April Liu is our production assistant. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.